Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Andrew Smith, the author of Terror and Terroir, The Wine Growers of the Languedoc and Modern France, and the book was published by Manchester University Press in 2016. Hi there, Andrew. Hi, Roxanne. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine, thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Absolutely, of course. Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France? Well, at the minute, I am a senior lecturer in contemporary history and politics down at the University of Chichester. Um, And I've been working on France really ever since I was an undergraduate. When I started at university, I didn't really have a sense that France was the way I was going to go. Um, I was really passionate about history, but I didn't really know... I don't know, I didn't really have a focus in terms of area or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was largely to do with uh, an inspiring teacher at uh, university, as so many of these things are. Mm-hmm. Um, chap Stephen Tyler that I worked with, uh, who, his classes were wonderful. We studied Algeria. We looked at um, a whole host of different topics that really fascinated me about French history. Um, and so I found myself kind of falling into it that way, uh, really just through undergraduate study. Um, and that was the way I kind of got into to French history, uh, which obviously carried on through postgraduate and then into the PhD as well. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what brought you to the study of wine in particular? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that, that was one of the, um, the interesting bits because I've always been interested in wine. And I say that not just as a sort of uh, passing <laughs> everyone loves a drink type thing. But uh, my dad was a wine merchant when I was growing up. And so I was aware of the world of wine. Uh, I saw him uh, involved with wine, going to France. That always looked nice. And actually, one summer uh, during high school, uh, he asked what I was doing that summer. And, you know, the answer is the same as ever. Uh, Nothing much, just playing football and messing around. So actually, I did a a course, a professional qualification in wine uh, during that summer of school. Um, I had to tell some fibs because I was 15 at the time. Uh, So (laughs) under the drinking age. But so that that kind of, uh, first of all, gave me a a taste for wine, um, which my uh, budget probably still can't support. But uh, it also then kind of drew me into working with wine. When I was at university, I had to do a bunch of jobs, a number of jobs as well. And I worked in a couple of wine stores and then took on some uh, some work doing tutor tastings. I started working for an independent wine store and actually up until the very end of my undergraduate, that was the way I thought I was going to go in terms of careers because uh, it seemed to be the most promising. Um, but I decided to, to stick at it and, and go into academia. And that was really how I came to this topic as well mm-hmm. um, because when I was trying to think of a dissertation topic, it was actually Stephen Tyre I was talking to. And he suggested I start thinking about things I liked, French history, and what else could I combine it with? I said, well, you know, passionate about labour history, um, about wine, he said, well, where's the intersection? What's your favourite wine? And actually, my favourite <laughs> wine has always been uh, its always been Fitu, which is, of course, a, a very famous Languedocian uh, red, uh, which I absolutely love. And so once I started looking into what the history of uh, Fitu was and if there was any interesting stories around the area, very quickly I stumbled onto the group that I wrote my book about, who I think are phenomenally interesting. Um, it's, it's funny because when I was reading the book, I, I felt this kind of topic envy, right? Thinking that... <laughs> wine drinking is often uh, the opposite of work for me or it works in the sure, opposite yeah, direction. Yeah. And I thought wine drinking is part of his job in some ways, or at least <laughs> a familiarity with it. So in the introduction to the book, Andrew, you talk about this project as a as a political history of wine. And we know a lot about wine as a kind of national emblem uh, of France and its associations with high culture and luxury. But what you're interested in mm. this book is is wine radicalism, and you use this word in the title and throughout the book, uh, terror. So I I guess I want to ask you about how you're using both the word terror and terroir. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think 
it's important, as you're saying, to think about what wine is. Wine can be a product which is um, very high end. It's luxury. It's something which we associate with leisure. It's something which uh, we talk about in terms of enjoyment. Um, you know, we use poetic vocabulary to describe it. Mm-hmm. But it's also something that's very everyday. And actually, for you know, much of the period that I'm talking about in the book, for much of the 20th century, it's something which is just an everyday drink. It's not something that people uh, wax lyrical over. And that's one of the things that really interests me. First of all, the type of wine that people actually drink, not the type of wine that people write poems about. Um, the other thing is, part of me is more interested in the people that make the wine um, rather than just the people that drink it. Right. Because I think that's where we start to see these kind of, you know, very high concept ideas of, you know, when Roland Barthes talks about it as a totem drink. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at ideas of consumption, that's when we really find this kind of lyrical identity talk. And for me, I really wanted to see, well, fine, yeah, sure. But what, what about the people that make this stuff? Because they're not... Uh, wealthy by and large they're not you know very urbane they're not people who are the sort of people that would engage in that sort of highfalutin lyrical language around wine Um, and so for me the part that I wanted to look at was as you said this political context of wine the way that we can actually understand it as being something which is a staple and not a star of the dinner table Mm -hmm. by looking at producers not consumers by understanding in that sense what it means so that tries to take the balance between these two ideas, between, on the one hand, terroir, which is, um, as we know, it's this French concept, this kind of magical, romantic topic, um, which unites uh, the grape, the vine, the soil, the sun, the grower, phases of the moon, if you want to go that far. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all this stuff, it's, it's sort of religious in a way, and it becomes this sort of untranslatable, this unrelatable, magical sense And in many ways, it is a poetic, lyrical, magical thing. And it inspires. And I think that's quite important because that kind of stuff can be political as well. It's about the kind of the gut reaction. It's about the things we feel. It's about, you know, we hear um, people talking about ideas of uh, colonial common sense. Things like that kind of bridge the gap between what we articulate on an everyday basis and what we actually see Mm -hmm. played out in front of us. So terroir is something It's a rich, dense, knotted topic we can pick out. Now, of course, that flies in the face of something like terror. Um, that flies in the face of political violence. The mm. two could barely seem further apart. But actually, it's that sort of lyrical commitment to the idea, to the field, to the industry, which I think creates something of that potential for violence. I think it's important not to just look at it as something, the violence which we see and which I describe in relation to uh, to the Languedoc is not based on some huge idealism. It's not based on um, on some sort of ideology of violence mm-hmm. um it's a everyday down-to-earth response to market fluctuations and real grinding poverty at times um when we look at something like wine growing in the Languedoc, i find it easier to frame it in the context of something like shipbuilding in glasgow or newcastle or in the mm-hmm. u.s something like car making in detroit it is something which just makes the region move and so when there are huge fluctuations dinner is not on the table people go hungry people you know really feel that downturn in a, right. in a very personal physical sense um and they're not by and large employees of some huge company they can't go out on strike and so suddenly they find themselves in mobilization and direct action a new method of actually making their voices heard and so for me that's the kind of the very broad bridge between those two seemingly you know, opposite uh, terms in terror and terroir. Um, one sort of romantic mythology, the other sort of like horrific and actually quite gutsy response to, to real poverty. Right. Can we back up a little bit, Andrew? And I mean, I know that the Languedoc has a really long and rich history and that you can't easily summarize it. But just for listeners who might not be as familiar with the region itself, what some of the key points in its history might be that we would want to know yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're talking about the, the very the very south of France. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about uh, the big wine growing centres, uh, which around the, the the cities and towns that um, will be famous to people's ears, like uh, Montpellier, Béziers, Carcassonne. Mm-hmm. Um, further south, like Perpignan, we're talking just about where um, France comes down to meet Spain. Um, and then moves round, uh, kind of bordered by Marseille and the other side as it follows it around the coast. So we're talking about uh, this, an area in the south of France, which is coastal, um, but then has 
uh, sweeping plains um, and then larger mountains uh, towards the rear as well. So we get a, a, series, a sense in the Longerok that we have a divide between mountains and coastal plains, and that's uh, played mm-hmm. out in the uh, quality of wine as well. Um, but the departments are uh, usually the ones we talk about are Aude, Ejo and Gare. Um, sometimes we might go down to the Pyrénées Orientales as well to draw them in in terms of uh, their winemaking. But they tend to be the, the focus of um, this region and its, and its wine. Previously, uh, its, its historic identity is that it's sort of brought into uh, the purview of the French state uh, during the Albigensian Crusade. It's up to that point, it's part of the land of the, the Counts of Toulouse. Mm. Um, and following the Albigensian Crusade, of course, Simon de Montfort and the uh, Crusade South to, to rid the South of, of heresy, uh, to rid it of the Cathar heresy, mm. means that the uh, lands of the Counts of Toulouse fall forfeit uh, and are seized by northern barons, which sees them then brought into the, uh, the purview of the French state. And that actually marks the idea of uh, regional identity quite strongly, I think, mm. um, this idea of difference, um, this idea which much later they come to call uh, colonisation. Um, but also it, it characterises the attitude and the response to, to that identity thereafter. So in terms of industry, uh, it is up until the early 19th century, there is a good linen trade um, and cloth trade in the, the Longanoc, um, which starts to fall away um, as other centres develop a much uh, a much stronger, more industrial capacity um, to produce. What we then see is, along with the growth of railways, the Longanoc comes to rely on its greatest asset, which is sunshine and lots thereof mm-hmm. um, and so it's a great place to grow wine, it's a great place to grow vines because they're very productive in the sun and so yeah the Longerock starts to kind of um, take up this role as the sort of vineyard of France because it produces this basic staple wine and it produces lots of it and as railways become increasingly important in the kind of 1860s uh, kind of early 1840s onwards mm-hmm. um, that really pushes out uh, the produce of the Longerock all the way up to uh, the north of France and beyond. Um, it becomes the place that wine is produced. Right. So, Andrew, not knowing a great deal about wine history myself, I'm just wondering, you know, if you could say a little bit about who you're speaking to, who the book is addressed to. I mean, we already talked about the idea that this is a kind of political and social history of wine rather than an emphasis on that luxury culture and consumption and that you're interested in producers. So there's that. Who are you in conversation or maybe even in debate with in this book with respect to wine history? And then if this is the case, the broader kind of post-45 history of France, do you see the book as a contribution along those lines? Yeah, I I certainly hope it is. Um, some fantastic work on wine and uh, people like Colleen Guy have done some amazing work on champagne talking mm-hmm. about ideas of consumption and how that fits into projections of national identity. Um, Marion de Mossier likewise has done some really phenomenal work which talks about the symbolism of wine, how its production has changed and how that really has been important in shaping French identity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a fantastic book and now an older book um, by a chap called Charles Warner um, called uh, The Wine Growers of France in the State, I believe, um, which is which is really good, um, but tantalisingly, as far as the Longueroc is concerned, ends in seventy six, which is a bit of a totem year for right. um, for them. Um, so those books, I think, are, are really interesting in terms of what I'm speaking to in terms of in terms of wine. Of course, there is a, a very strong French um, heritage of uh, French, so very strong French language historiography um, around wine as well. Uh, people based in the South who are producing wonderful, wonderful work talking about the mm-hmm. same types of uh, episodes that I'm describing. René Pesch and Jean Sagnez have talked a lot about 1907, about the... Um, Sagnez wrote a very famous book about the Midi Rouge, um, and Jean-Vierre Javignot-Fontaine has done a, a number of really big, great surveys um, of the period. Um, but what I've tried to do differently, what I've tried to add to that, is really to try and look at it from a sort of different perspective. Um, I've tried to take it away from the the, the first couple of people I mentioned by uh, looking at producers rather than consumers. Right. Um, I've tried to take it away from uh, the work of some of the, um, the, the, the French scholars I've mentioned, um, 
by trying to kind of internationalize what I'm looking at as well to look at the sort of global connections um, and try and understand it in a grander framework, not really just about the history of the wine industry, which is a term we use in English, which is wholly unacceptable in French. Um, but, <laughs> I like that uh, moment in the introduction to the book where you talk about using it, I think, in an interview and having someone yeah. frown at you about it. <laughs> Oh my God, yeah. It was one of these things where people just looked at me as if I was uh, had two heads or something. Um, you know, uh, wine's not an industrial beverage. It's an act. Oh, no, 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 I didn't mean, oh, no, no. Uh, sheer panic um, as my uh, yeah undergraduate French was uh, not particularly holding up at that moment. Um, the other one was when I asked if people approved of direct action, but actually they took it to mean the terrorist group from the 1980s. Uh, and again, I got myself into a pickle trying to walk backwards from that right, and say, I'm right. not, I'm not crazy. But yeah, so I, I've been trying to kind of do some of these things to look at it a bit differently, try and contextualize it in a bigger way. Let's talk a little bit, Andrew, about who the book is focused on. I mean, producers, yes, but um, you really follow this thread of this central organization that I'm going to call it the CAV. I don't know if that's what people yeah, call yeah. it. Um, and then also, you know, the how in terms of your source material, you mentioned that you did some interviews. I know you also look at the regional press. If you could just say a little bit more about who and what you're using to access the story that you're telling in this book. So one of the things when I started looking at the topic was I ran up against what anyone who studies, well, labour history in general, but specifically French labour history, um, which is the alphabet soup of syndical organisations and trade <laughs> unions. And trying to get your head around those struggles and those internecine conflicts and, you know, that kind of stuff is, is really, really tough. Um, so there's a chapter in the book which looks at the post-war history of those winemakers representative groups at the trade unions at the groups which mm -hmm. really try and negotiate around you know what what, uh, what happens to wine growers and how they actually have a voice in government but the group that i'm really massively interested in is again the group you refer to there the CRAV, the comité régional d'action viticole the regional wine action committee now uh, and they're also sometimes just called the comité d'action viticole the Wine Action Committee as well. Right. They come into existence in 61 um, after a period of wrangling between all these different uh, trade unions that tried to outflank each other on the left. Right. Uh, and they kind of cut this knot and really do so by just simplifying the message and um, by talking about direct action, by talking about their opposition to imports, by just saying, look, let's not worry about broader issues of, you know, politicking and all the rest of it. Let's just get out there and on the streets. Now, the reason I find them so interesting is these guys, by and large, um, the first generation of these wine commandos, as they get called, um, come back from doing their 30 mois in, in Algeria. They've done their military service. They've been, um, they've uh, tried to serve the state uh, in a, you know, a horrible, bloody war, which affects many people. Um, mm. They come back home, broadly young men, to villages, towns, which are just as poor as they were when they left. Um, just as much on the periphery of the French state as when they left. And suddenly, a number of them, um, and particularly one guy, André Caz, um, starts to uh, draw some, some links and draw some kind of direct experience from the methods, uh, if not the ideology or anything like that, of um, the people they'd fought uh, in Algeria. Mm. And actually, it's really interesting. You see a lot of people talking in the, 60, in the early 60s about using new methods they learned, cutting down telephone poles, um, you know, cutting down signposts on roads, uh, you know, taking direct action in ways that actually will disrupt the state. Mm -hmm. And they literally say, you know, we're doing it comme les la we're doing it just like we did against, uh, we did, sorry, just like we saw um, people mm -hmm. do in Algeria. People say, you know, it worked for them down there. Why won't it work for us here? Um, and so that's really interesting. It's not you know, that they support the FLN or it's not an anti-colonial struggle. I don't think you can write those kind of broader solidarities whatsoever. Right. But what it is, is a kind of like accretion of methods. They take this kind of uh, core of sort of guerrilla guerrilla methodology and really kind of grow it um, once it takes root in the Languedoc. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's, that for me was absolutely fascinating. So you get, I think, somebody like André Caz um, joins up with another guy, um, André Castellar, um, Castilla represents the sort of uh, the old reliable wing of uh, wine growers representation. Uh, he is this wonderful figure. Um, they call him the Christ of the Corbière. You know, he's got this like <laughs> haggard face, this croaky voice and this real kind of, uh, he looks a bit like Samuel Beckett, I always think. Um, 
Now, he's called the sort of professor, and Aldrich Kaz, on the other hand, is this young, tumultuous guy who is, you know, a real kind of uh, brawler, who's really seen to be a bit of a kind of, uh, you know, tribune. And actually, that partnership of the, the young, active hotheads alongside these older figures, these lyrical characters, these charismatic leaders, that's what produces this movement, this organisation, the Comité Régional d'Action Vitico, as they from about 1961. Um, so they spring into action. They start to uh, to really, you know, uh, immediately start protesting. They uh, start blockading roads. They start taking action in terms of bombing uh, railway lines, uh, bombing, uh, cutting down telephone poles, cutting telegraph wires, um, starting fires. These kind of like low level sabotage uh, attacks, um, which are designed to disrupt the state. Mm-hmm. Now, we see these things in different ways in the material that I used. In 61, the police, and this is one of the great things you can use, the, the Ronsanyumong General reports, the police reports that you can get in the uh, departmental archives, look at what's happening in a region. And quite often they're taking the temperature of what's happening amongst wine growers. Mm-hmm. And specifically around 1961, they talk about a, a nouvelle vague chez les viticulteurs. So they're kind of, you know, they're sensitive to the fact that something's changing. And actually that, that's one of the most useful places that, uh, I found a lot of colour were the police mm-hmm. reports on what's happening. Now, of course, there's difficulties in using that. They exaggerate it. They're trying to um, also look after themselves. So there's a lot of good support and a good coverage in the regional press as well. Um, so there's a huge survey of regional press. There's a number of regional papers, many of whom are broadly sympathetic to the actions of these wine growers um, in, in the early periods and are quite happy to print their communiques as they go. Now, fortunately, uh, in the Archive uh, Departemental de Lourdes, um, you can find the, uh, the archives of the, a group called the CGVM. It's the Confédération Générale des Vignerons Méridionaux, uh-huh. um, which is a, a big umbrella wine growers trade union, which sort of is the, um, the long established one which gives birth to the crab. The crab draws on the accrued capital of the CGVM. Mm-hmm. Um, when it actually uh, is talking about its story. So um, their archives uh, are in the the departmental uh, archives, their phones are in the departmental archives. So we're able to access uh, police records, we've got a lot of regional press, we've got uh, records from the wine growers themselves. Um, There's a really great book which is written by a few of the wine growers, which gives us such a, a, a wonderful, rich sense of who they want to be who they're kind of putting themselves forward as so that's really great as well and it, it provides this 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 wonderful touchstone um where you kind of get a good insight into uh, joining the dots in terms of some of the people and characters that you see mentioned elsewhere so there's there's a lot of documentary evidence that i that i followed otherwise as you say i uh perhaps the most romantic moment of my uh my doctoral research was uh doing interviews because and I was doing it, I was too young to rent a car. Um, you have to be 25 to rent a car. That's um, right. <laughs> yeah, so I uh, I would get the bus out as far into the countryside as uh, as it ran and constantly mystified bus drivers would say, are, are you are you really sure you want to get dropped off here? <laughs> um, and I would just walk and walk and walk and walk for miles and miles and miles and turn up at vineyards, knocking doors, asking people, um, just trying to speak to kind of ordinary people, speak to owners, uh, workers, always uh, being careful not to introduce myself as English because that always produces problems in France. But uh, instead, as a young Scottish student wanting to, to access X, Y, Z and to listen to them and to tell the story. And so, you know, I wore holes in the bottom of my shoes walking and talking to people. And that was absolutely wonderful. You knock on some of these doors. Some people say, of course, come in. Wonderful. You chat uh, and you get these great things. Other times you speak to people and they say, no, go away, get lost. Right. But actually some of the best material that I found was talking to people and just asking their opinion. And you get these wonderfully lyrical moments. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a guy I spoke to just outside um, Perpignan, um, just outside a good walk outside Birmingham, <laughs> I should say. And he sat there across this huge desk smoking cigars because, of course. And I asked him one of the questions I was asking people was about globalisation. And he sat back and he said, mondialisation, c'est une force. And he said, it's a force like Hitler, like Charlemagne, and like them, it will pass. And it's just, wow, wonderful, amazing, <laughs> you know, wow. scribbling this stuff down. I'm not I'm not sure quite if I'm with them in terms of uh, the logic of that quote or whatever, but in terms of colour, in terms of the material you want to gather from interviewees, that's right up there. 
I'm just wondering, Andrew, I mean, a lot of the activity that you're charting in the book is illegal. <laughs> so I'm just wondering if that played a role in your conversations with people, whether that posed a challenge in terms of the oral history work that you were doing in the interviews. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I always made clear to people was that I wasn't interested in naming them in terms of attributing actions to them or anything like that. I wasn't there to sort of settle accounts in that way. Um, I said to them as well, there are a couple of people that are anonymous uh, that when I cited their interviews. Right. And, you know, you did get a sense sometimes that people would tell you a story about a friend and you think, well, maybe you're not talking about your friend. Um, and, you know, people talk about actions and give you quite a, a strong sense that they supported them. Um, but then we try and back off a little bit and say, well, you know, no, maybe not the worst of the things they did, I don't support. So right. I think there's, there's, there's a lot of um, movement and flexibility around that. I did start to kind of like break the crust of it a little bit. Um, I got uh, like an anonymous message at one point. We said, parler du crave dangereux, dot, dot, dot. Um, and that was one of the things I was going to call my thesis because I thought it was amazing. This sort of like slight ambiguous threat when they said, you know, talking about this group is dangerous. Right, right. And I think in a sense, it could be, but I was so obviously not a policeman um, in my <laughs> shambling, dishevelled state with my with no uh, terribly accented French, no car or anything, you know, um, that they looked at me, I think, just as a sort of uh, charity case more than anything. But the best thing is you sit down with a lot of these guys and you ask them, I mean, many of these people, when you speak to them, if they are independent wine growers, they're small business owners. So you're asking them about their grumbles with the local kind of regional council. You're asking them about their grumbles with government. So sure. at the end of the day, you it, you struggle to stop them talking, um, is the, the by and large of it. So, you know, I did I did feel like I sort of started to brush up against that idea of maybe the dangerous side of it, just a, a smidgen. But um, I hope that I always conduct myself in, a, in an open enough way that, you know, really I wasn't um, ever trying to get mm. to the bottom of things or name people in that way. And plus, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily sympathetic uh, to them, but I'm certainly not unsympathetic. I think right. that's one of the things I try to get across in the book. I don't, I don't really set out to condemn these guys. Some people in France, when they saw the, the title um, saying terror, they were really quite sniffy about the fact of saying, well, oh, what are you calling these guys? Why are you saying that? And I'm saying it because it's a title and it's a snazzy title and I like it. But <laughs> it's, um, I think it helps to understand the pattern of movement, the pattern of mobilization. Um, and I think actually when you look at their, the, the reasons that they do these things, they're not... The worst violence is not justified, but I think the, the anger is justified. Um, the violence is misguided. Um, there's a sort of passionate violence which really spills over and sets their cause back a lot. But that doesn't make the things they're angry about wrong. That doesn't make the things they're kind of passionate about wrong. And I think that's one of the things I really tried to get across. Not a sympathetic eye on their actions, but a sympathetic eye on the things which produce their actions and on their identity and on their claims and their voices. Well, and I think there is certainly a political effect to using the word terror at this moment in time in an expansive way, right? In, given that it certainly has a quality of having been reduced in contemporary France and elsewhere to mean very specific activity by very specific groups and a, a really deep association with Islam in contemporary France. like So people use the term in a really reductionist way. So I think your use of the term is actually to remind us that there are, uh, there's a range of types of political violence and direct action. And I think it's important to use the word terror, or can be, yeah, in, yeah. in some ways. Um, Absolutely. So the book is focused on the post-45 period, but mm -hmm. there is a prehistory here, and especially what looms especially large is this revolt, this moment in 1907. So the first chapter sure. of the book really focuses on the memory of this turning point um, in the region with respect to, to, to wine growers. So can you tell us what happened in 1907 and why is it so important? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think uh, in terms of our potted history before we got to um, mass production and railways, uh, and of course the, the thing that comes next after that is phylloxera. Right. Phylloxera vestatrix, which is a tiny louse that eats the, um, the rootstock of vines. Um, and in particular, uh, and this is the kind of, uh, the, the geeky bit, I suppose, but um, it's the, the vine stock of Vitis vinifera, which we call the noble vine. Now, the reason for that is because uh, the phylloxera louse, the phylloxera statric louse, is from North America. Um, so it's imported into France by growers who are looking for a way to try and sort of 
increase profits. Um, and so they end up, you know, bringing it across. Um, and of course, it's used to eating uh, the Vitis Lambusca vines, not eating the Vitis Lambusca vines, which have developed a resistance. But when they get to Europe, um, the Vilifera vines um, have no, no resistance whatsoever. Um, so there's devastation right across Europe, but especially in southern France, where, as we said, that's already a huge area of concentration. Sure. Eventually, the solution is to graft the vinifera vines onto uh, Lambusca rootstock. So once that solution comes in, there is an attempt to replant, and there's a huge overheating of the economy in the south. People return to that sort of path dependency in a huge way. It worked um, before this disaster, and it will work now. Hmm. That's the real problem. This hugely overheating market clashes with developing practices such as sugaring or chattelization, um, which allow lower degree wines to sort of add a bit of sugar during fermentation and then kind of up the alcohol contents to make them more appealing. Mm. And that's one of the big factors uh, which causes the downturn in 1907, one of the big focuses of the protests. Now, the protests in 1907 start uh, really after a series of uh, mobilisations. Um, there's a sort of precursor to 1907 and 1905, uh, when you get all the kind of uh, wine growers' unions come together, but just don't quite get together. They can't quite bridge the gap between producer and uh, proprietor mm-hmm. and the, the whole thing breaks up but in 1907 that doesn't happen because really we get this one simple message um, and a simple message articulated by a chap called Marcelin Albert um, he starts a sort of a committee in Argelier there's a government inquiry into what's happening with the wine in the south and why things are so bad and they meet this government inspector and kind of start this protest and so uh, around this group in Argelier around Marcelin Albert um, you get this crystallisation of a simple message that it's fraud which is the enemy and that the Logrock is suffering. Um, Albert's uh, a simple guy, he's a cafe owner, he's a sort of petty bourgeois guy, he's not radical, he's not a revolutionary, he's none of these things, but he suddenly becomes the figurehead of this growing revolt because where 1905 failed, 1907 succeeds because it's able to actually say, look, this isn't about politics, this isn't about proprietors and you know producers, this is actually about people struggling against fraud this is about things being brought in and done to us from elsewhere mm. um, so they, they really are able to mobilize that rhetoric and what happens is really over the series of a series of sunday protests um, it builds and builds and builds until you get to this like height of about six hundred thousand people um, on the streets of Montpellier. this is a huge wave of protests wow. after this you start to get a lot of violence involved as well and um, the government uh, under Clemenceau responds in a very heavy-handed way there are troops in the street who fire indiscriminately at protesters. Um, they kill protesters. A young uh, woman called Cecile Burrell is 21, is shot down in the street. And tragedies like that really kind of encourage more and more violence. Um, you then get uh, a theatre in Narbonne is torched. Um, you get, uh, you know, a huge amount of real anger and passionate anger comes to the fore. Mm-hmm. Notably as well, we also see the defection um, of of a unit of the army, the 17th, who defect um, to the side of the protesters. So this seems huge, you know. Um, they're drawn from the local region. They're not going to fire on their um, fathers, brothers, mothers, wives who are standing in protest. So they really kind of join the protesters, and it's seen as a momentous moment. One of the other things which becomes unacceptable, and it depends on the story you can uh, you want to tell, but the government either reacts to all of this violence and the kind of threat of revolt and the telegram wires being cut and all this kind of stuff, or there's also the idea that a tax strike takes hold as well, um, and it really starts to kind of uh, starve the government of any kind of income. So you combine this kind of really violent and visible protest, but also tax strikes as well, which produces huge kind of um, huge panic in government. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really the, the high point, it's the high watermark. You refer to this moment, Andrew, as, um, and I'm quoting you here, the founding myth of viticultural radicalism in the Languedoc. And, you know, in this first chapter of the book, you are looking at the kind of interest in this moment in, in the immediate post-war period, or how this moment is remembered after 1907. And so I'm just curious about, uh, I mean, you've clearly outlined why it's so significant and why people would want to remember it or consider it a founding myth. But how does the interest in 1907 converge or connect to what is in the beginning of the story of the book in the post-45 period, a region that is also uh, recovering from the Vichy period? Uh, Sure, yeah. I I, I mean, I think it's because 
the mythology is such a become such a good story. The idea that you know the region was able to assert itself, was able to kind of uh, to to drive change. It becomes a kind of radical past, which they're able to to mobilise this militant past in service of uh, contemporary political aims. So during that period of rebuilding, once again, you've got externally driven pressure to change. Um, you've also got the emergence uh, of the kind of deputy du vin, the, the wine deputy figure around people like Raoul Bayou in the kind of mm. 50s and whatnot. But they're able to draw on a, a personal constituency of saying, actually, I'm here to represent the wine growers. Um, and that becomes a really important focus of the Fourth Republic as well. So that is something which is important. And actually, you get many of those people then uh, pose with veterans of 1907 and veterans in the 17th. And so I think I talk about in the book, there's... Uh, you know, there's, there's very famous photos where they pick out some of these veterans. There's also the Communist Party produces a, a film about the strikes in Renault in the immediate post-war period, and they actually start to talk about 1907 in the same way. Um, and they raise it in the assembly, and it's actually, you know, people are, are worried about the radical potential for talking about defecting army regiments, for talking about people, you know, taking to the streets in, in, in huge numbers, and also the possibility of the communists taking ownership of something like this. Right. The second chapter of the book, Andrew, is really focused on these themes and issues of post-war recovery, reconstruction, you know, rationalization, uh, and the resistance to rationalization. And you're talking about, you brought this up a little bit earlier, this idea of political representation and representation of the interests of these wine growers in this period. So could you just give us in broad strokes what this period, 1944 to 1960, what's so central about this and and how the CRAV, well, it's created in this period, um, and what are the other org- organizations uh, what are some of the characteristics of the other organizations vying for position in this in this moment? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, this is this is the kind of the alphabet soup period that I, that right. I mentioned earlier on. Um, so there's a, there's a number of different groups. Um, one of the the key ones is the Comité Marcelin Albert, which has a direct link again sure. to 1907. Um, I talk about the Défense movement, the Défense du Van movement, which is really this this body of uh, kind of protectionist kind of um, issues around uh, around wine. So they're the kind of the archivists for the Défense movement. Other groups you get are like the uh, the Ligue des Petits and Moyens Producteurs, the League of Small and Medium Producers, uh, which harks back to the 1930s as well. So. Many of these groups are kind of looking backwards. Um, mm. They're talking about the ability to really hark back to a different age, um, to an area of um, kind of more important mobilisation. Um, so, yeah, a number of these groups, uh, another one to name is the, the Comité de Salut Viticole, without getting into too much detail around the kind of syndical shuffling, mm-hmm. um, because nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> They basically keep trying to outflank each other on the left. Sure. Um, they keep trying to get more and more extreme. They keep trying to say that other people aren't quite doing this right. And they're constantly kind of uh, criticising each other and fighting between each other. So in a way, you get the idea of uh, small independent growers pitted against cooperatives and people who just uh, kind of you know work in the fields pitted against those who um, actually produce. And it's a series of kind of internal struggles, which actually mirrors the period before 1907 as well, when you get all this kind of factionalism and internecine uh, mm-hmm. struggles as well. Um, so so that, that's that's where we get to um, during that period. Attempts to, to revive, attempts to mobilise, attempts to counter the great sales crises. Um, right. But ultimately, amongst those unions, it really is a sort of fighting amongst themselves. We've already talked, Andrew, about the creation of Krav and, uh, you know, its evolution. And I'm just thinking that, you know, we could kind of move ahead to thinking about the late 1960s and then this other big moment uh, Mm. that you talk about in the book. If 1907 is key and then the creation of Krav in 61 is key, then 1976, the gunfight, um, as it's referred to. I need to ask you to tell that story in in, in as brief a way as you can. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, 1976 is the, um, at one point, it's the it's the most outrageous thing that the crowd get involved in. Um, it's the, you know, 1907 is the high point, and then 1976 in many ways is the low point. Um, it's a real tragedy. 1976 is the culmination of a huge period of what we call kind of almost open warfare uh, with the police, cat and mouse struggles with the police, fighting with the CRS, um, constant mobilisation in cities and towns across the Longuerok, uh, and constant attacks, small attacks, which you know build up into a greater sense of unrest. And what eventually happens is that the CRS are accused of provocation, the wine growers are accused of provocation, and they start carrying guns. You know, we're talking about um, southern 
uh, peasants, effectively. They self-describe as peasants mm-hmm. um, rather than farmers. They carry hunting rifles. Um, and so the fact that they start carrying hunting rifles is seen as a way of sort of protecting themselves against the provocations of the CRS, but it's also it's a fresh provocation as well because we know the CRS are armed, we know they have tear gas, we know they have batons and all the rest of it. And what happens is um, in 1976, we get this this moment um, on the 4th of March where uh, there is a confrontation between wine growers and police. And really they come to a head at a bridge uh, at a place called uh, Montredon. Now, it's one of these things. Nobody knows who shot first. Um, right. It's not possible to know who shot first. But what follows is a gunfight. Um, and a huge number of people get shot and wounded, um, but two people die, um, one on each side of the conflict. So uh, a wine grower is killed um, and also a, a CRS officer is killed. Um, now, this is this is huge because, I mean, up to this point, the crowd, they mobilise, they protest, they bomb things, they start fires. This is, you know, it's, it's property destruction. It's striking out against symbols of the state. It's an right. attempt to kind of, you know, to amplify their voices. But they don't kill. They don't murder. And this really changes and hardens the attitude of a lot of people because... Mm. Because spilt blood does that, because, you know, killing people does that, because this is horrible. There's nothing that really defends this type of violence. Admittedly, the forces of order are not without fault in terms of the the kind of aggressive way in which they continue to try and take the fight to the crab. But at the same time, both sides come out badly. That that stain of spilt blood is very difficult to wash off. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just wondering, Andrew, about... I mean, obviously, there's the regional and then, you know, local motivations and evolution of the organization and and these other organizations. But I'm just wondering, you know, here we're talking about this period from the early 1960s to the mid 1970s. So connections to, you know, a kind of global 68, well, and specifically French 68 era. But then also as we move into the early 1970s, um, other types of regionalism that include violent activity, and then even, you know, throughout Europe and elsewhere, other types of movements that get labeled and understood as terrorists. And I'm just wondering if the Cobb have a sense of themselves in relationship to workers and students in 68, uh, or I don't know, the Red Army faction or whatever, (laughs) you know, do they, is there that kind of broader referencing to other movements? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there is there are attempts to draw much broader solidarities um, in the most immediate sense with the Occitan movement, um, right. of course, the kind of minority nationalism of the Languedoc itself. And that's really important. And that kicks off at really about the same time as the Crave. And that's one of the reasons mm. that it really coincides. You know, from about like 62, um, you get a, a series of southern sociologists um, start to re-engage with the, the political potential of Occitanism more than the sort of literary Occitanism of the Felibrige, the poetry, etc., but actually as something which is a sort of a political identity, a, a people's identity, um, as well as a poet's identity. And there's the formation of a committee, an Occitan committee for study and action, which starts to kind of become more and more radical. And actually, there's a sort of confluence, really, of course. It's difficult at times to talk about an ideology that the crowd follows, except for this one of 1907, because it's very diffuse, because it doesn't have like a, you know, they don't have membership cards, they don't drop tables, they kind of, they allow a sort of degree of, uh, a huge degree of flexibility for members and then try and kind of apologize afterwards if you see what i mean but there are a number of people who kind of cross over with the oxtan movement and who engage with the oxtan movement and we see kind of the oxtan uh, cross starting to be born at the head of wine growers protests we start to see a lot more use of oxytan in radical wine growers newspapers so that's mm-hmm. another thing i should have said i use in terms of sources and so there's a huge amount of crossover and confluence and one of the things I mentioned in the book is we see one of the chaps, uh, Jean-Pierre Lad, uh, talks about the fact that uh, around about 76, they get a visit from some of Colonel Gaddafi's um, representatives who sort of just try and sound them out to say, you know, hey, you guys look like radical revolutionaries who are fighting the state. Would would you like help smashing the state? And one of the things they have to explain to them is actually, well, no, we're wine growers who remain Republican. We are actually interested in representing our interests and not in, in, in that. So there are definitely moments where you see these convergences with that broader kind of idea of international violence and solidarities with international violence. Right. With 68, um, the difference is sometimes the disconnect between cities and towns so there are um one of the chaps Andre Caz does write an open letter to the students um in which he sort of says 
we need more support from you before we start to support support your cause. Mm. And there is actually some movement around that. But 67 remains more important for the CRAV than 68 uh, because there is a sort of a huge market downturn, there are huge mobilizations. And one of the things that happens is in the elections that 68 triggers, um, Andre Castera, the guy I talked about before, the Christ of the Corbière, he tries to stand um, against the Socialist Party um, and ends up losing. And it's a, a big defeat for the crowd. So actually, 68 itself isn't really that great for them. Just a few of the stories that you've just told and then some of the things you said earlier uh, make me you know, want to not forget to ask you about the gendered aspect of all of this, the, yeah. the very dude-centric history. That's yeah, not your fault, but but no. that, I mean, the, the way in which this story is, I mean, even just the Christ of the Colbert and the, these, mm. these figures. And yeah, you do talk about the role that women play in this movement, but it is a pretty male movement. So do you want to, could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was one of the things I found uh, really interesting uh, when I'm looking at it because, I, you know, I, I didn't want to just write a history in which women were absent and that was uncommented upon because it strikes me as unusual because when you look at some of the, the most famous images of 1907, for example, there are women front and centre in those protests, carrying placards, um, you know, filling the lines of protests. Like, they are involved and active in this defence of the region. Mm -hmm. But what you start to see, especially with the Krav um, and this idea of direct action, is this kind of idea of the wine commando start to come out. Right. And there's far, far less room for women to play a part in that, largely because of the sort of attitude of the region. Um, I've written an article elsewhere about rugby, wine and socialism, um, which really <laughs> defines this sort of holy trinity of southern masculinity. It's, it's what tends to actually make a, you know, like somebody down south, like a, a good guy, is they've got to be all these three things together. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting to see where that kind of ex excludes women because it creates this hyper-masculine situation. It creates this idea, this cult of action, um, which is really about kind of like people meeting around cafe tables and planning things and then pulling on some balaclavas and just doing it in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. So that's a... Um, that's a space in which it's actually quite difficult for women to enter because of the uh, the kind of uh, the, the homosocial element of that. Sure. But in terms of spokespeople as well, that's another point. There are some female spokespeople, um, uh, in particular, there's a woman called Madame Jelie. But it's interesting to see, especially because one of the things is you notice I just said Madame Jelie. I'm not saying that out of some sort of uh, kind of odd. Uh, chasteness. It's just simply because I've been unable to find out her first name anywhere. Wow. Everywhere I look, I can't find the woman's first name because everyone calls her Madame Shaylee. She doesn't ever address herself by her first name. Nobody talks about her as a sort of person. She's talked about as the wife of a wine grower. All of the interventions she makes talk about the hearth, talk about home economy, talk about the impact of this and the need for women to mobilise alongside it. So actually, even when we do see women enter into this space, even when we do see prominent women spokes people what we end up with is really a reinforcement of the status quo and a reinforcement of quite kind of staid and kind of socially conservative roles so this isn't a sort of like campaign for like ultra progressive you know like new alternatives and i think that's something we can definitely say the crab aren't um is a sort of massively progressive group in that instance and that's one of the reasons we see them kind of having these odd alliances with different groups because their politics aren't always hugely progressive the politics aren't always really positive sometimes these are quite kind of earthy responses i think you might say you go on in the book, Andrew, to talk about the period after this turning point of the gunfight uh, in 1976 and some of the big issues that you look at in this period from 76 to through the 90s and really right up to the, the present in some ways are this transition to socialism uh, in the early 80s and this era of modernization. And then also, you know, the role that these big forces play that are external to the region, the European Union in particular, you know, starting with the EC and then moving on to, to European integration and globalization, uh, however we want to define that term and think about that mm. and the impact on the region. So could you talk a little bit about those big forces in that period from the mid late 1970s uh, through the early 90s? Sure, yeah. I think it's a, uh, it's a point of huge challenge because um, the idea of, of fraud, the idea of imports, which motivates uh, the wine growers since 1907, 
is really writ large as soon as you start to involve global markets. Mm. Um, they have uh, the CRAV, the, um, the, the Défense movement, have extraordinarily low opinions of Italian wine, um, about which there's a huge scandal around uh, uh, the early 80s, um, about the mixing of ethanol with, um, with wine. Um, they have extraordinarily poor opinions of Spanish wine, which they see as being kind of like often contaminated or polluted. Um, they talk like they, they cast aspersions against whole nations. And when they talk about Italy, they talk about you know um, an Italian addiction to crime, etc. Um, one of the, the silliest things they do um, after the kind of the horror of seventy six is in nineteen eighty four they torch an absolutely huge Leclerc supermarket um, just outside Carcassonne. Um, now they do that because they're protesting against the sale of foreign wine in French supermarkets. And this is one of the things we see them do quite a lot. They do it from, like, 60 onwards. They smash Algerian wine, they smash Spanish wine, they smash Italian wine. And they do it, first of all, by, like, hijacking tankers of wine, which might be going to be bottled elsewhere, and spraying it and getting rid of it that way. They do it by boarding ships, um, which have tankers at places like Set, and mixing um, motor oil with that wine. They do it by walking into supermarkets with baseball bats and smashing all the wine on the shelf. Um, and they still, so when they burn this huge Leclerc supermarket, it's absolutely vast. Um, and it's a huge crime. And what they lose in the fire is really their credibility because when Leclerc is able to come down and talk to them, you know, it turns out that actually he is um, the largest seller amongst all his stores, uh, of, of Oudoua wine. And likewise, that 0.1% of the wine sold in Leclerc uh, stores at that time is from outside, uh, from outside France. Um, so they, they completely you know, cut the nose off despite their face by targeting this guy who then boycotts Oudoua wine um, for a significant period afterwards. And that really lends um, some space to people in the region who are more committed to the idea of development and the idea of changing the way that that the longer dock works because this is really when you start to get that pressure from outside that pressure from government that pressure from europe to produce less and produce better quality that moment in 84 is a really big window in which that um it's a hinge i think on which the longer dock turns um mm-hmm. of course there are uh, no longer just european uh, competitors um the the rise of the new world of course you can talk about the uh, you know the tasting in paris in 76 the um, california wines and all the rest of it all of this drives forward a market which is increasingly competitive as french people drinking ever less wine um and the long rock is being encouraged to produce ever ever less wine again um so these factors really converge and not going to run through the statistics they're in the book to, to see but um mm-hmm. produce a period which is a kind of pinch point so the, the crowd lose a lot of credibility, they lose a lot of manpower, they lose a lot of voice, and that really seems to kind of uh, dampen down the movement to something which is much, much less representative, much, much less a mobilisation of the base, and increasingly just a sort of lead S group railing against the void amidst all these kind of pressures towards globalisation, I think, that we see elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Andrew, the role of the political left is significant throughout the story that you're telling in the book. And, you know, and then you talk about this transition to, to socialism at the at the national level. I'm just wondering, mm-hmm. though, how much this is a story that it works with our understanding of the history of the French left, um, whether or not you think of this as a uh, as a history that is a, a contribution in some ways to a broader history of class or a history of capitalism. Sure, yeah. I mean, so right from the start, uh, it's uh, I, the idea of socialism is is is, is right there. Um, even in 1905, the reason they can't go ahead is because you know uh, supporters of Schulgezd um, won't drive things forward. After 81, um, when you get uh, the socialists in power, it really seems to change things because it means that many of these wine deputies, many of these socialists who represent wine-growing constituencies really can no longer talk about opposition. They can no longer talk about the centre because suddenly they are the centre. Mm. Um, and it kind of unpicks all this kind of you know traditional alliance, um, which mm-hmm. has always been there between uh, the kind of defense movement and its representatives. And that unpicking of that kind of uh, specific type of Southern socialism, I think, is, is quite important. What that opens up is space for different types of radicalism. Um, one of the things I don't do so much in the book, which I'm uh, starting to do a bit more of now, and I've, um, I've done a couple of papers looking at it, is, of course, if we're talking in an, an ultra-contemporary sense, this is 
the area where we see a huge development of support for the Front National, for example. Mm. Places like Bézier, the capital of, uh, capital of the wine world, um, electing someone like Ravar Menard. Um, and a lot of that's down to unemployment, a lot of that's down to um, negative attitudes towards immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that, I think, is also to do with a sort of political kind of realignment which takes place towards the end of the 70s into the early 80s, mm-hmm. which really takes place as the Front National is finding its feet. Um, I think there are ways we can look at how some of the rhetoric of these groups fits into other things, um, how it fits, it can move from the far left to the far right. Mm-hmm. I think there's an interesting moment when uh, in the early 60s and throughout the 60s, people talk about internal colonialism. But of course, that takes us down the road of the Cores and the Zambes. It takes us uh, down the road of sort of ideas of equivalence, of rejection, of uh, foreign aid. It can take us through Pujad and all of these things as well. And I think there is an element of that which is always at the heart of it. Many prominent Kravis throughout, they talk about, you know, Pujad and Pujadism as being petty fascism and all the rest of it. But then we end up in a period where 10, 15 years after that's been said, uh, we're looking at the election of Front National mayors. So there is something, I think, to be said for how that realignment takes place, that broader shift, that mm. disenchantment with an older vision of what the left is um, and a different vision of what the central state is. I think, if anything, what we see throughout the period I talk about is the Logarok trying to accent development, accent change and accent modernisation, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I say in the conclusions is it's not about peasants into Frenchmen. It's more about peasants talking about the idea of Frenchness, talking about the idea of Logarokian identity, mm-hmm. talking about industry, talking about activity and talking about class as well. And it's more of a negotiation and attempt to accent change at every point than really to reject it outright. It was really interesting given, you know, the recent election and reading, I mean, I feel like I've been reading endlessly about different versions of populism in the last year. And um, it was very interesting to read this book and to, to think about how this type of activism might now converge with certain types of political movements. Yeah, on the right, but also on the, on the far left. Um, so yeah, it was kind of fascinating to read this this book at this particular moment. Do you see a kind of connection for yourself as an author publishing this book now in relationship to contemporary French politics, either in the region or on a national level? It makes me wonder. Um, I think, you know, I come out of the the conclusion really talking about the idea of alternatives and radical alternatives. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a history of mobilization within the crowd which speaks to those radical alternatives. So desire not to kind of not to kind of rot in the south or to rot in the periphery, Mm. but actually to make local communities viable, to talk about the fact that people should be able to live and work the land, to have sort of alternatives to industry, modern kind of machines and all the rest of it. I don't mean that in some Luddite sense, but in the sense that there are kind of different models of development which can be discussed. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, that's part of what I took from it. I think in some ways that's my sort of dreamy-eyed idealism that comes through that. Mm. I think you can look at it another way. And, you know, what are the Krav in some ways except a group who, you know, take direct action against the state, um, often unbidden by any higher authority, make, you know, grandiloquent demands to withdraw from Europe and stop imports and to ban foreign things, um, who try to kind of police their own communities in an active way that prevent people doing what they want hyper-masculine, kind of exclusionary. Like some of these things are, are contain the seeds of a really extremely negative reactionary point. So I find myself, I suppose as many people do at the minute, looking at, um, we talk about the contemporary elections, you could talk about somebody like, someone like Amon who, you know, had wonderful ideas mm. um, but absolutely no platform and was trounced and seems to have uh, absolutely killed off the potentially the party mm. um, of the, the PS in France. But at the same time, you can look at the horror of the Front National and their kind of, you know, uh, resilience, I think. Um, although they were resoundingly defeated in the election, there maintains a huge core vote, which, you know, presents that worrying sense. So for me, I suppose that tension, that uncertainty I have about what the crowd represent does speak to the contemporary political position in France, where I think a lot of people have that same worry, you know. Mm-hmm. There are real problems in terms of inequalities in France. There are real problems in terms of uh, local communities um, and clearly division. And it depends whether those great radical alternatives are allowed to flourish or are able to flourish or whether they continue to face a sort of 
uh, continues to face the logic of the market, to put it one way, mm-hmm. um, which I think drives the hand of people like the Foreign SNL um, and the worst elements of uh, what I've been describing. So, Andrew, there are many other questions I could ask you, but um, maybe you can just tell me what you're working on now that this book has done. I kind of hinted at it there. I'm really interested in this idea of uh, internal colonialism and how this develops. Um, of course, Todd Shepard's wonderful book about uh, inventing decolonization um, really inspired me to think about how some protest movements and radical movements in, in France, like like the Crav, like the, um, the Occitanists, draw from the end of empire and start to kind of use some of that language, to use some of those types of methods and really build on those ideas. So I'm really interested by a, a broader study of how the end of empire sort of changes and inflects protest in France amongst groups which are perhaps not traditional and how that maybe leads us towards understanding a better way um, to see where some of that transition between extreme right and extreme left happens um, in contemporary times. Well, Andrew, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book. Thank you very much, Roxanne. Lovely to talk to you.